Well, good morning, saints of God. It's so good to see you and be among you here today. And I'm thankful to God for this opportunity uh, to share God's word uh, with you and uh, to be convicted and rebuked and taught and instructed by God's word myself along uh, with all of you who love the Lord. And for those of you who are guests, we welcome you here today and are so glad that you are joining us and hearing the good news of Jesus Christ. Um, ben, I don't know where you went, but that was a very kind introduction. I have so enjoyed my fellowship with uh, Ben and Rachel uh, also. And then uh, a little inside joke uh, to Rachel, which I'll explain to you in just a second, uh, if Rachel really is here. Um, one time I was on campus and I'm Rachel passed uh, by and um, I didn't get to speak to her and she's always kind to speak and so I sent her a note through Facebook Messenger said I'm so sorry I was not trying to be rude in not speaking to you today I was just in a rush I had to get where I was going and uh, she wrote back well hey Eric that's great but I wasn't on campus today <laughs> oh you certainly have a uh, twin somewhere out there in the world uh, and so that's a nice running joke that she and I have together. All right. Uh, let's turn into the Word of God to Ephesians chapter 1. John, thank you for your hospitality this morning, too. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning with the first verse, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let us pray. 
We bless you, Father, for all your kindnesses toward us in Jesus Christ. Would you graciously grant us understanding into today's text, understanding of the heart and of all of our affections? Would you be kind upon us and forgive us of our sins? Would you make us instruments of your mercy, of your glory, to all of Evanston and the surrounding areas? Bless through us the campus of Northwestern to hear the gospel boldly. Bless that those with whom we work, those who reside near us, those who join us in our leisurely activities, that they would see and hear the gospel living and flowing through us. Bless now that we would have hearing and power to preach. We give you thanks. Reach millions and billions of others who are in need of Christ today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There is an old and popular adage associated with families that simply says, you can't pick your family. The adage finds appropriate use when speaking of the dysfunction or frustration experienced by a child within his or her family of origin. No more than the child originally could name himself or herself can a child select the family into which he or she is born. Therefore, as the adage suggests, the markings and influence of an abusive, negligent, criminal, unaffectionate, or broken family are not the fault of the child or of the child now turned adult. Unfortunately, many wish they could have picked a different family in which to have grown up. Some show this by spending much of their lives as parents trying to provide for their children the very things that were lacking in their own home or upbringing. Others simply say, I'm never having children. For it is easier to avoid the potential of reaping being the family of the can't-pick-your-family adage than it is to overcome the pains of past family while trying to offer something vastly different. Even if we experienced a good family and healthy family growing up, we have been touched by the lives of others whose childhoods were far from fairy tale stories. We say, if only we could pick our own families from the beginning, we think to ourselves, we would have picked a perfect family. And of course, we would have been the perfect child with the perfect siblings and the perfect parent with perfect upbringings, one free from many of the pains we experienced. But we can't pick our families. One might be then terrified to learn that not one person can choose to be in the family of God. As much as the choice of your family of origin is beyond your control, so your choice of being in the family of God is far beyond our control. Yet quite unlike the disappointments, dysfunctions, and dangers to which the family adage points, our complete lack of involvement in becoming members of the family of God is the very thing that places us in the family that everybody wants. Or rather, because God takes upon himself 
the total responsibility to place us in his family, we each end up being part of the most glorious and incredible family in the universe to the glory of God and to our complete joy. This is what we see when we open the word of God to the lead passage in Ephesians and consider the idea of the elect and redeemed family of God. I know it has there in your bulletin, the redeemed family of God, but I added a little bit since I sent in the sermon title, the elect and redeemed family of God. In the first three verses, Paul claims to speak with the authority of God as an apostle that the Lord wills for us to grasp the knowledge of this passage and embrace it. Paul will address the believers in Ephesus as saints or as holy ones in verse 1. Those who are made holy by virtue of our relationship with Jesus Christ and not by veneration of a religious body or verification that we have performed a miracle. Paul also addresses ordinary believers in Rome, in Corinth, in Philippi as saints. Yet, he indicates the significance of what he is writing is for those who are faithful, for those who are showing a pattern of life consistent with the identity of saints in whatever geographical location one might find oneself, whether in Ephesus or in Corinth or in Rome or in Philippi or in Evanston. Grace and peace. Paul writes, are common enough greetings in New Testament letters, yet Paul is in fact communicating the Lord's acts in these letters as he writes according to the will of God. It is the Lord who intends to fill our lives with grace and peace through the words that fill the letter to the Ephesians. It is to us and to all the saints that we hear the words of grace from the Apostle Paul today. That grace being that we are an elect and redeemed family made so through Jesus Christ alone. Paul will say three things. First, we are an elect family. As Paul delineates the spiritual blessings God the Father has given to his own through Jesus Christ and in the invisible realms where he dwells, he says that God the Father chose us. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with, uh, in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him. This is consistent with what we read in Deuteronomy 7 of the Lord setting his love on Israel so that above all the nations of the earth, they might become his own. This, too, what we're reading of God choosing us here is consistent with Romans 9, where Paul walks through the stories of Abraham, Isaac, and Pharaoh to explain God's purpose in election that acquits the Lord of wrongdoing in declaring righteous those who have faith in Christ and not those who keep the law of God without faith. We are chosen in Christ on the basis of what God the Father would, did, will do, and is doing in the person of the Son of God and the works of salvation accomplished by the Son of God. We participate in and benefit from 
All these because we are in Christ, united together with him. Last year, I became a card-carrying member of the AARP. So now my email and inbox and postal mailbox are inundated with more information beneficial to people over 50 than which with I can possibly keep up. I'm certain that the AARP has sold my contact information to every insurance company, vacation planner, financial investment firm, and health improvement outfit in the entire country. You all who are laughing, you understand exactly what I'm talking about. There are, of course, some good benefits that come with being a member in the AARP. For example, just last month, I went to stay at a hotel. As I was making the reservation, the agent asked me, are you a member of the AARP? And for the first time, I got to say, why, yes. Yes, I am a member of the AARP. What does that get me? An 18% discount on top of my rewards program? 18%. (laughs) Okay, Uh, it's time to go and use that discount to get some barbecue from some restaurants around here. Yeah. (laughs) Well, just like benefits come by my uniting with the ARP, things come in the package of Christ for the saints in this family who have been united in him. But they do not come by our signing on for membership. Paul says that we are an elect family before the foundation of the world. So long ago that we had nothing to do with the choosing. We did not seek it or earn it. Neither did we even dream of it. You had to be here before the foundation of the world in order to dream up election. God alone qualifies for that role. He also says that we are an elect family so that we should be holy and blameless before God. When we were born into this world, it was not our goal at all to live a life set apart to God and for his standards or to be ones who would face no accusation of wrongdoing according to God's law. Instead, Scripture reveals that our entire disposition is bent on not pleasing God. We come into this world driving full throttle against whatever the Lord wants, and we will not hit the brakes until we are too deep in hell's fires to throw it into reverse. But so that... Some might escape that eternally destructive path. God in eternity past says, I will do a work in my son Jesus to make them holy and blameless. Christ alone will be holy and blameless in keeping my law and standards perfectly. So I will unite my family in him. Paul further says, We are an elect family of God as an act of love. There's a little clause at the end of verse 4 that says, in love, then verse 5, he predestined us. My heart breaks when I hear people say that they cannot believe in a God who saves by election because it does not seem consistent with a God who loves the whole world. Yet, 
as Paul will show and as I would agree, election is the first act of love of a holy God. God intentionally designs all of the plans and actions to make sure we will stand before him blamelessly. He does so before he forms the world so that salvation cannot be on the basis of merit. Then he rests the plans on the preciousness of Christ before him and not on our abilities, or rather, our inabilities to please him. And then he is in Christ pleading with us to drop our rebellion against him and to accept what he has done through his son. If that is not a picture of a loving parent going all out to give a child the best possible chance at a great life, I will have a hard time figuring out what a loving God is. When we or when a child questions the love of a good and faithful parent, what do we do as parents to counter, or I should say, what do your parents do to counter? We run down the list of things that we have put in place to give the child the best possible life. We say, I used to change your diaper. You know, we start there. I don't know why we don't just go back and say, I took prenatal vitamins and went to Zumba while I was pregnant. I mean, if we're going to start that far back. Um, your mother and I sacrificed so that you could have the best education, live in a nice home and neighborhood, go to good and even great camps. We followed you all over the country with your sports and your instrument, sitting in cold bleachers and paying for lessons that cost as much as a house note. When you got into trouble, we bailed you out. When you broke a window or crashed the car, we took care of it. We let you go to the college of your choice instead of the cheaper state school, our, our, our alma mater, which we could have afforded. And now you question our love for you. What about all the Lord does for all those he chooses to save? Oh yeah, I know. Today's idea of love means to accept everything everyone does and fully include all persons in all things that we identify as good. To do less would be unloving or even bigoted, or maybe even worse, maybe even homophobic. But the you're not loving rhetoric itself, one, is one of election. It is one in which some groups get to exclude those who have a Christian moral standard from being identified as kind or good according to that group's subjective standards. And two, that rhetoric does not sound like the inclusive love the standard claims to envision and exemplify. And three, Neither does such rhetoric consider that love seeks the other's highest good. That the highest good there is is God who is holy, and so love must seek for others to be holy in order to enjoy the holy God who is the highest good. We serve an infinitely loving God who in love predestined us for adoption. That is, he brought us into his family on the basis of choosing us in Christ. 
The predetermined path of those chosen is that they would become part of God's family. This too is glorious. And I see why Paul sounds quite charismatic in his expression in this passage with multiple, blessed be this and praise be to the glorious that. For 1, 3, chapter 1 and verse 3, it's clear that God is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, genealogically speaking. When it comes to kingdom, phylum, class, order, and family, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are the only ones in those domains as divine persons. Genus and species of divinity give you Father and Son and Spirit as different persons of the same substance. But that, is still, that still excludes us. So, how in the world do we get to be part of what the divine and eternal being and persons are doing? The Father, through the Son, says, although you are not mine, I will declare you are mine by taking you in as my own, although I actually only have one son in my family. In fact, we are not just children in need of him to take us in. We are enemy children, sold into slavery to our own sinful dispositions. And yet he has taken us in through Christ. As the great evangelical theologian J.I. Packer says, quote, adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. The traitor has been forgiven brought in for supper, and given the family name, unquote. We are adopted to the position as sons so that we get the full access to God that the genus son has, and we get the full inheritance rights that the genus son has, as anyone under Roman law in Paul's day would have understood. Adoption is not an afterthought of God, but it is what God decreed from all eternity. He chose us so that we might be adopted, so that the grace of God towards us goes on display. It is grace that comes by blessing, by being in Christ, the beloved one of God, and not something we do on our own. We are an elect family. Second, we are a redeemed family. Note again that this is the experience and reality we have as saints in him, in Christ. The terms in him, by him, through him, with him, are littered throughout the writings of Paul and the other epistle authors in the New Testament. The terms speak of our mysterious union. In an invisible and spiritual realm, we are tied to, found in, and receive benefits of salvation on the basis of who Jesus Christ is and what he has done. It is mysterious in its invisibility and spirituality alone. 
not as something mystical or something confusing. Mysterious here does not mean confusing when speaking of the union. It is a work of God alone, not something we conjure. We don't say to God, say, can I come join your family and, and reap the benefits? Instead, he says to us, in Jesus, you have been joined to my family, and you will reap this family's benefits. By this mysterious union, we have redemption, Paul says, a powerful concept that speaks of God purchasing us so that we are his own and we belong to him. The purchase price is the death of Christ. Because in order to become God's own, our law-breaking acts must be canceled. God's law says that only blood, Paul says blood here, meaning death, only blood remits sin. Sin is so atrocious to a holy God that it incurs the penalty of death as the only possible satisfying payment. There is no payment of anything greater than what we call the ultimate sacrifice when referring to our first responders and our veterans. The highest payment is what God demands for the canceling of sin's debt against us. So being purchased to become his own is accomplished by Christ's death on the cross as God forgives our sin. The Lord again does the purchasing, the death, the forgiving, so it is wholly a work of his grace being poured out from heaven on us like God is dumping barrelfuls of grace upon each one of us and we are simply being lavished in them, showered in them, the apostle says. As the redeemed of God, God has led us in on this great plan that Christ is accomplishing in the end of time when all this present world and realm is accomplished and completed. God will tie together all the saints and the new creation and the angels of God and things in the cosmos with God himself in one big eternal peaceful, glorious, holy, blameless party in which we will increase in our knowledge of God and our joy in him forever. The experience of this in its fullness, we do not have the capacities presently to grasp in our finite and corporal beings. It has not even entered into our hearts what God has prepared for us, Isaiah 64 tells us. However, I think Pastor Tim Keller is spot on when he describes that future experience as dancing with God forever in love and in joy. Third, we are a family of heirs. We are an elect and redeemed family, but we are also a family of heirs. All the way down in verse 11, it says, in him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit 
who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Inheritance in him we have obtained in verse 11. The Holy Spirit is a guarantee down in verse 14. We are a family of heirs. The grace of God in Christ secures an inheritance for us. This adoption as sons comes with the privileges of inheritance, the predetermined design that brought adoption, brought an inheritance according to that same decree of God within the eternal planning of the three persons of the one triune God. Paul will describe it as counsel. Those who place their hope in Christ, often at risk around the world of rejection and ostracism, from their own families and greater society, will not find their decisions to have been wrong or in vain or even at a loss if that is you today. Instead, the inheritance makes placing our hope in Christ worthwhile in that we will receive all that Christ will receive in the ages to come. We will inherit the fullness of Christ himself, the rest of the New Testament teaches. This magnifies God's grace again, for inheritance is given by the prerogative of the owner and not by the right or demand of the child. Freely, God will give to us all that he gives to Christ, his own son, for we are in Christ. Their inheritance is guaranteed for us in the gospel by faith through the working of the Holy Spirit. All the talk of what God has chosen and accomplished in eternity past and done by decree could leave us wondering if the Christian life is not simply an act of absolute determinism, negating all the free will of persons. However, as Paul indicates here, we do have free will. We have enough free will to hear the truth about the death and resurrection of Christ and his sufficiency for salvation. The good news, Paul says here. We also have sufficient free will to believe. That is, to place trust in salvation or in Christ for salvation by volition. The belief does not make salvation. For Paul has already indicated 10 times in this passage that the spiritual blessings are in Christ and through Christ. He praises God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for the spiritual blessings that are in Christ. Belief simply trusts the work of another, whereas work trusts in our own abilities. So when we place faith in Christ, we are trusting in the work he has done rather than our own works. Belief is the saint's response to the gospel. So if you are sitting out here today and you've been invited by someone who loves Jesus Christ and you are wrestling with whether or not to place faith in him, or maybe you're even saying, that's not for me. Let me speak to you just for a few seconds here. If you want to become part of God's family, then believe on Jesus. 
Don't worry about all that election and decree and predestination stuff. Just place your faith in Christ. Trust that Christ's work to secure salvation by dying in our place and rising again from the dead is the only way to salvation. It is the only way to see a holy God. Until now, this passage has focused on two members of the Godhead, the Father and the Son. But the faith that we have is Trinitarian, understanding that God is three persons within the one God. The third person, the Holy Spirit, secures our inheritance so that it can never be lost. The Spirit secures our salvation until we possess it in full and final form. The Spirit of God enters the believer's life taking up residence in each one of us individually and in the family of God, the church, corporately. And he is the deposit or the down payment of God on our complete salvation. Some of your translations say deposit. Others of them say down payment. It's the same word. Some translations just use different terms to explain it. I can remember from our early married life, that having cash deposits was often key to securing big items we needed. You need two months of rent for a security deposit for your first payment on your apartment or your first house rental. A car dealer would prefer some portion of your car purchase to be a down payment from your own accounts rather than the full purchase going through financing. Even if you have a large scholarship funding, a university wants you to send a deposit to hold your space in the incoming class and then another deposit to hold your housing after you think you've written the last check for that semester. The deposit intends to ensure that both parties will keep the contract, even though we would be willing to lose our deposit to get out of a contract offer for a better one in some cases. God, however, in securing our redemption forever, offers himself as the deposit, as the down payment on our salvation so that he guarantees salvation will come to us in its full expression. Because we are chosen in Christ and redeemed in Christ, the family of God will inherit everything salvation has to offer. No matter what, God is not looking for a better purchase. God is quite happy with the purchase he has made through his son and has put the Holy Spirit on it to guarantee that that purchase will be his own. The Father, in eternity past, determined to give the Son to die for the redemption of we whom he has chosen so that he could adopt us into his beautiful family. And then he has given the Holy Spirit to make sure that what he has purchased will be his forever and that he will for certain give to his children the inheritance that he will give to his very own son. So what does all this mean? Three things, and then I'll take my seat. Number one, it means that being the family of God is about our holiness 
and not about optics. The way in which we make decisions about who we will know or love or serve or embrace, follow, celebrate, or put forth to represent us in a body must be made on the basis of our mutual identity as adopted sons of God. The world can play popularity contest and look for the pretty, the handsome, the polished, the accomplished, the financially established, the athletically built, and the intellectually astute as the measure of maturity or growth or success or worth. But we do not. We recognize that every saint is simply a former rebel now experiencing in God grace upon grace upon grace as an adopted child, and we will embrace one another as such. Once we, the family of God, get this right, then we really can go and love our neighbors in the world, and they will love to be part of this family. Two, it means we are free from demanding all expressions of Christianity within the family of God, be exactly the same. The essence of who we are as the elect of God is what is the same in God's family. But all forms of how we express our faith are not the same. Expressions change based on experiences with earthly families, regional practices, national beliefs, periods of history, cultural folkways and more ways, and in our wisdom toward our witness of the gospel. As any expat or foreign-raised member of your congregation might tell you, Christianity as we practice it here in the U.S. does not look like Christianity as practiced in other places they have lived and or as ser have served. North American Christianity is not the litmus test for whether or not one is a believer or a church is true. Neither is Christianity as expressed in the practice of the Midwest the same as elsewhere. And we cannot hold people from other regions or of other ages or ethnicities or dominations to our expressions, lest we be found not to be members of the family of God according to the standards of others. Let me explain. The way I have experienced the practice of belief here differs from the practice I experienced growing up in Maryland, which would be the South to most of you, although it would be the North to those of you who grew up below the Potomac River. I know that would be the North to, to those of you. That is, since I arrived uh, here in Chicago four years ago, very few believers have had trouble at all offering me a form of alcoholic beverage with a meal or drinking one in front of me as if we're all Presbyterians. And just <laughs> but in Maryland, and in other places of much of my previous ministry travels, no one would have dared offered Pastor Redman a drink, or even admitted to having alcohol in the home. They would have looked at me dumbfounded. What is alcohol? I mean, it just... <laughs> Should my friends in the East and the South conclude that I am now hanging around with a bunch of heathens and hypocrites out here in the Midwest? <laughs> Should they question 
the expression of other Christian practices, expressions that differ greatly from their own. Being chosen, redeemed, and sealed with an inheritance frees us from being religious inspector generals. And I say religious because that's all it is. Inspecting expressions is not Christian. There are responsibilities we have as elders and we have as believers in order to make sure we fence the table when we're serving the Lord's Supper and making sure the body is remaining pure. But forms of expression are not often about purity. We do not look, by the way, to see real things like whether or not a believer's practice has been shaped by trauma or hardship. Neither do we seek to evaluate whether or not the other expressions excel at loving, unlovable people in a way that we cannot due to our inability to exchange our expressions of salvation. Three, it means we need to make lower priority of our lists of complaints about the family of God and life in general and a higher priority to our praise of Christ. Let me repeat that one. It means we need to make lower priority of our list of complaints about the family of God and about life in general and a higher priority to our praise of Christ. You see, Paul praises the glorious grace to the praise of his glory to the praise of his glory three times in here in the passage. I'm not even sure how Paul was able to pen this section. In the Greek text, you can tell he was excited because verses 3 through 14 are one long run-on sentence. It looks like Paul just got caught up thinking about how great is the grace of God. I, I can imagine, if you would allow me to use my sanctified imagination here for a second, I can imagine he started writing, Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, chose us in him before, holy and blameless, predestined, adopted through Christ to the praise of his glorious grace. Paul probably at that point paused, put down the stylus so that he could bow his head and raise both hands to God and simply say, hallelujah. Recomposing himself, he then picked up the stylus and wrote, in him we have redemption through his blood, forgiveness, riches of grace, lavished, making known the mystery of his will, predestined. He put down the stylus again, looked to heaven and quoted from the Old Testament, the Lord is good, his mercies are everlasting. He tried to pick up the stylus again and started thinking, had to put it down and just had to get one more in, worthy. Then when he could calm himself down again, I imagine, he started to write again and he stuck in one of those to the praise of his glory. He kept writing, sealed, Holy Spirit, guarantee of inheritance, guarantee 
guarantee, down payment. By this time, all he could do is be redundant again. And he sticks in the same phrase he just stuck in, to the praise of his glory. Because Paul understands that God has just said that in eternity past, before anything else came to be, when God was thinking about creating a family that would be saved and not damned, that would be filled with joy and not doomed to perish. He chose me and he chose you. Glory be to our God. When his son went to die for people deserving of death, he purchased you and me. Worthy is the lamb. He made us children of the king. Bless his name. Even though we struggle with temptation and sin, he will make sure the family members are completely holy one day. Glory to God. And then he has some riches on top of it to lavish us with just because he's that good. Awesome is our God, or as Paul would write, to the praise of his glory. So down goes that list of complaints. That list, by the way, will still be there when you get done pausing to go praise God for all of his goodness. It'll, just, it'll still be there. So might as well take that pause and go and praise God for all he's done and then see that list of complaints. But now is a time that praise should come up to the one who made us for his own glory to the Father for a wonderful plan like this. Magnify the Son who has invited us to the dance of love and joy. Bless the Spirit of God who is living in us and holding on to us in such a way that we will be God's and God will be ours. Hallelujah, hallelujah, and hallelujah. Glory to God. Thank you, Lord, for picking us to be in this adopted family when we had no ability to pick this family. Praise be to your glorious grace. Amen and amen. Let us pray. How wonderful, God, it is to be adopted into your family. Adopted because you predetermined we would be on that path to be taken as sons. Because in eternity past, you made choices in Christ for your own. In mercy, God, today, through Christ, would you invite others into this glorious and wonderful family so around your throne we can dance together in love and joy forever. We give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you.